everybody to another episode of White Coats of the Round Table. And today we're going to be talking about uh, should healthcare professionals face criminal liability for malpractice. Specifically, we're going to be diving into the case that we've all heard of. And there's definitely been a lot of conversations on Twitter, on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, everything. Because this is the first case in which a verdict like this was found. that would be the Redonda Vought case. So Mike, hearing this, because you are a hands-on practitioner, pharmacists aren't usually hands-on. We see from a distance, we might do some discharge counseling, we do counseling, but rarely are we doing any hands-on administering of medications except for vaccines, which we can get into that a little bit today. I wanna know what your initial thoughts are when you first saw this before the hype in uh, hoopla that was out there regarding whether she should be indicted or not. I want to know what your thoughts were. Well, actually, before we get into that, John, I think maybe it might actually uh, be better if we just give a little bit of an overview of the case. Not everybody that's listening to this may be as in the loop on the case. Go ahead, yeah. So, uh, as you said, I think it's been all over social media. This is why we picked to discuss this today because there's been a lot of outrage, not just from the nursing community, but really healthcare in general regarding this recent verdict. So Redonda Vaught is a former nurse and she was down in Tennessee. I believe she was working in an ICU setting and she was recently found guilty on charges of criminally criminally negligent homicide and gross neglect of an impaired adult. And what happened is in 2017, She administered a paralytic agent mistakenly to a patient when a sedative, Versed, was actually ordered to uh, reduce the patient's anxiety before an imaging study. Unfortunately, the patient stopped breathing and ultimately died. And the criminal prosecutions were brought. um, In addition to malpractice, she did lose her her nursing license, but then a couple years down the road, criminal prosecution was brought and the verdict was decided recently and she was found guilty. So she's still pending uh, sentencing, but it's a good opportunity to talk about this because a lot of people are looking at this case with a great deal of fear and um, consternation because it is so rare for medical malpractice to be played out in a criminal prosecution or in the criminal court. Usually this is done civilly. And there's many people that worry that this case is gonna create a dangerous precedent because it'll discourage healthcare workers from reporting errors. Throughout this, Redonda has admitted that she made a mistake. She, her defense has been that this was not intentional, this was not malicious, but rather a mistake due to a variety of circumstances. So the worry is that if this person goes to jail, which it looks like she likely will serve time, what does that do for other healthcare professionals down the road if they are making mistakes or maybe having near misses? Will they be too nervous to come forward? On our end, so you, your original question from a hands-on clinician perspective, it is interesting. I, I read up on the case a little bit, and, and as you said, we, we can go into down the road whether 
she should have been prosecuted, whether she shouldn't have. But really, the the big thing here that I think is a little bit nerve wracking is that medical errors can happen to anyone. You know, certainly in medicine, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But in my clinic, there's been cases where we've had to override the Pixis system. So that's the the medical dispensing unit. If something's not working, we have a patient that needs medication, we'll, we'll override it. So there's, there's opportunities within healthcare, I think, daily where these systems that have been put in place to protect against medical error may malfunction, they may be burdensome, there may not be time to, to implement the system, such as having to call a pharmacist to clear an override or, or things like that. So it is a, a little bit terrifying that such a, a drastic fatal error occurred because I think these things are things that can happen to any one of us. I don't know some of the specifics about the case that I'm curious about that maybe you do know. I've looked into it a bit. I couldn't find this. When she overrode on the Pixis, did she get a double sign on that? Because usually you have to get um, a second signature or you have to have a nurse manager override it as well. Any idea? Because I'm looking and I can't find out if that happened or not. Yeah, I'm, we have checks in place. So, yeah, I'm also not an expert on the case. I've read several articles, but I, I did not go and read into the original nursing complaint. I, I guess if you go and look at the Tennessee Board of Nursing, there is a formal complaint where you can read through in more detail. From my understanding, the hospital system at the time was switching over to a new EMR. So everything was chaotic. The, the entire system was down. Uh, I believe she was given instruction to do a verbal order and then was given instruction to override the system because it was malfunctioning. So it's it's one of those unfortunate cases where I think not only was there mistakes made personally, and she's admitted to that, but unfortunately, I think the the system wide, um, you know, opportunities to catch this or have multiple layers of fail safes were were missed or were just blown through. So there was a an offering at my school when I was in my graduate program for medication administration errors or just medication errors. There was a book that talked about something we refer to as the Swiss cheese model. An error does not occur in, in a vacuum. There's always something else happening as well. You have to pass through multiple holes in order for an error to occur. So not as experts on this case, but we can infer some facts that something had to have happened other than this nurse picking out a vial, pulling it and injecting it. One, it, there's a verbal order given. Nothing was written down. We try to keep within our limits in the EMRs. And if we go outside of that, there's always risk, which is why we do get second signatures, double sign these, not only the orders, but also the drawing out of the medication into a syringe. So not only did those, we'll call them holes, take place, but what I saw in the case, the system itself, the hospital system did not discipline. The board, the state board of nursing did not discipline either, or rather the Department of Health found no reason to discipline this nurse either. However, the system did not report that this error occurred to Medicare or the medical examiner. So how she was found culpable alone when the system itself had its issues that were not followed, I think we will get a little bit more into. I'm not going to draw any conclusions at this point. I think it's a highly volatile case. And nurses will even say medical professionals are going to give her a little bit more of a break than the, than the public. 
this may have been more of an outcry of the public that we've seen in other cases as well outside of the medical profession. So this is a horrible case, uh, our worst nightmare as clinicians, because when we're in school, if you make a, we were always told in our calculations courses, as we are deciding on a dose of something like vancomycin, because it takes a lot of calculations to get there or in aminoglycosides, there's very tight parameters. If you put a decimal in the wrong spot, if you forget uh, to dose for kidney disorder or disease, you could easily harm somebody, disable somebody, or uh, negligently uh, cause death of a patient, so they were always telling us, uh, you just killed the patient. If you got the medi- if you got the order wrong, if it wasn't exactly where it needed to be within a good, usually it's a 5% error rate, you've killed the patient. So we were, we were terrified to get into the field, especially when we were given our patients that we were actually working with within the healthcare system. We, had, we were assigned a patient within a healthcare system that we were placed in we were kind of responsible for some of the dosing changes. And when that happened, I can tell you, I took a lot more care, a lot more time to make sure, double check, make sure with a colleague that does this make sense? Uh, we actually spoke, I spoke to nurses a lot. Does this make sense? Would this, if you pulled this, would this seem within the range of what you usually do? So we are all frightened. I think as PAs, you too, when, when you finally have your own patient that you're over, overseeing without any overhead above you, any oversight, there is a sense of, okay, I'm the last stop. Uh, the education, the dosing stops with me. So we, sh- we do take care. However, with how many times you've injected somebody directly with medication, given a pill, documented in the chart, you've documented so many times, you've done so many of these actions, a percentage of these, if we talk about Six Sigma, you're still potentially going to cause so many lethal um, mistakes or errors. We actually had to calculate that in school. Did you have to do calculations on the potential lethal errors or uh, medication errors total that you would have in your lifetime? No, I think uh, pharmacy probably goes far deeper in that. And I'm appreciative that you do since honestly, pharmacy saves my butt frequently. Usually it's, you know, silly stuff. It's it's not even what I would consider near misses. You know, dispense amounts are wrong. Mm-hmm. But, you know, every once in a while, you'll have a script that goes through and the pharmacy will call. And then you look at it, it's like, ooh, that is not the right dose or that is not the right SIG on it. Um, and that happens to everybody. So along those lines, you're saying uh, uh, how terrified you were coming out of school. So I've got a great quote for you. Um, there was a opinion piece in the New York Times yesterday, actually. So today's April 16th, so early April, and it was written by Dr. Daniela J. Lamas, and she said, mistakes happen even to the most vigilant, particularly when we are juggling multiple high-stress tasks, and that is why we need robust systems to make sure that the inevitable human errors and missteps are caught before they result in patient harm. So I think it's a really good summation of this case where mistakes absolutely were made. Redonda Vaught has said that. She's not saying that these mistakes were not hers. She's not saying that something else happened and it wasn't her fault. She's acknowledged that she's made a mistake. But I think the key with it is there are so many failures from a system standpoint that occurred. Even things such as if they're rolling out the EMR 
you know, they probably should do it on a department by department level, or maybe they need to test it and work out the bugs before it goes out. If the Pixis is down, is there an alternate way to get verbal orders in that still allows double checking? Because if the verbal order system is bypassing a lot of those checks and balances, that's a huge concern. Mm -hmm. I think as clinicians, we can be, you know, nervous about this, but I think it's a nice reminder as well that those annoying things that we have to deal with at work every day that always seem like they cause more time, that they make care more difficult, are often in place as protections against that inevitable human error. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we think about ISMP. Are you familiar with ISMP? This might, again, be more of a pharmacist thing. I'm not. Enlighten me. So if you go to the ISMP website, there are top lists for medication errors, high alert medications. Uh, have you ever heard of tall man lettering? Uh, I've heard of it, but I couldn't tell you why. So explain it to me. So if you're, uh, if you have a, uh, we'll call it a remote pharmacy, uh, usually you'll find these in smaller clinics that don't have pixels or rural areas. They'll line up bottles on the shelves and you'll see when you look at a bottle of medication, um, we'll take one hydralazine. So hydralazine and hydroxazine are two of the most common errors that are made. Uh, you look at it quick enough, you're going to see one of them. You know, one's for itching and uh, we can use it for a sedative. We can use it for anxiety, which is hydroxazine. And then hydralazine is used for blood pressure. Now, hydroxazine, you can easily use 25 to 50 milligrams three times a day. Some people use it more than that, depending on their level of anxiety or, um, or itching. However, if you gave that amount of some of hydralazine to somebody who already had a lower resting blood pressure, they could bottom out, pass mm -hmm. out. You know, it's an easy error to, um, error to, miss. So mm -hmm. they tall man uh, has some of the letters in the middle, all capital, and they'll have some of the letters still lowercase. So it's a way to look at a drug and say, okay, I, I have to recognize that this is completely different because that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Capital letters are in different areas. So it's just a way to um, signify with the pharmaceutical manufacturing that as they put this out, this may reduce errors, but ISMP has a whole list of um, all other potential errors, crushing pills. There are things that you can crush and that you cannot crush. I would say that the majority of calls that I got from nursing when I was in the hospital was, can I crush this medication? Mike, I even got a call one time where, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't get the call. My colleague received a call. They told me about nurse called down and they said, uh, so I'm supposed to be giving this tablet IV um, and she ended up crushing the tablet, oh, no. by diluting it in normal saline, drawing it up and injecting it. The patient did not die, but you put particulate that is not only dangerous to the vessels itself that can cause occlusions and injury to the vessels, but it's not sanitary. Not only is that, so it's not sterile. This, this was written though. Someone wrote the order for this drug as IV and the nurse just carried out the order. She was not familiar that this came in a already diluted mm -hmm. um, vial. So it was, it came in a vial already. They had never seen it, never even heard of it. It was a newer nurse. 
So she crushed on the tablet, diluted herself and injected it. Now that uh, it's not, that's not just negligence. That is, um, what would you call it? Uh, Ignorance to the highest degree. Well, I think it, it would be certainly a near miss, you know, near miss, meaning that something bad happened, you know, a, a, a breach in standard of care occurred, but a negative outcome didn't necessarily come from it. But I, I think good transition. Let's actually use this opportunity to maybe go through the different levels of culpability. And this can help explain why the Redonda case is so, um, you know, nerve wracking for so many healthcare professionals. So we have what's called mens rea, which is a legal term, and it's somewhat unique to the U.S. Now, granted, I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV, so keep that in mind as John and I are talking about these topics, that we're approaching it as day-to-day clinicians that are, are seeing patients that are working during the day. So we are not legal experts, but we'll try our best. So mens rea refers to the state of mind that is statutorily required to order in order to convict a person or a defendant of a crime. So one famous quote that kind of goes with mens rea is former Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is a Supreme Court justice, said even a dog knows the difference between being stumbled over and being kicked. So the idea is intent. You you have to be aware or know of what you're doing. So a defendant must be aware of the misconduct. They may not necessarily think or need to know that it's illegal to be guilty, but they must be aware of what they're doing. And I've got a good example of that. So several years ago, I consulted on a legal case. A girl got pulled over, had a DUI, had her blood alcohol level of 0.37. So pretty high, went to you know jail. And she swore she didn't drink anything the day that she got arrested. So her lawyer actually hired me to go spend an entire day with her. And the theory was that she had this rare syn- um, syndrome called auto brewery syndrome, where mm-hmm. she had a, a yeast overgrowth in her GI tract that was actually causing a byproduct of ethanol to be created. So we went over there and we basically recreated the day that she got arrested with her DUI. We ate the exact same food. So she had big old bowl of pasta. She had all kinds of carbs. It was a very carb heavy day because she went to some picnic or something. And every hour... I drew blood and we measured her blood alcohol level. And then we also did a breathalyzer and we got her up to about 0.3. And at that point I called the lawyer and said, we got to stop. I'm not comfortable with this. She was slurring her words. She couldn't stand up straight. So I I was able to witness it. She did not have a single drink. I was there the whole time and had this immensely high blood alcohol content. With that knowledge, I wrote out an affidavit for the lawyer stating that she hadn't had any drinks while I was there. The case got thrown out because of mens rea. She was under the influence of alcohol while driving. She was impaired, but there was no intent. There was no knowledge. So that's why uh, it wasn't a criminal offense. That is amazing. I've was, heard of that a fun in case, a story. Yeah. Um, I've read. I read that somewhere. I had no. I had no idea that you were involved in one of those. That's that's incredible. I thought this was like a one in a billion chances of something like that occurring. Did you, when you, in that research, did you ever, I know this is kind of off topic, but did, did, did you do research as to how often like the, um, etiology and epidemiology of that type of yeast growing in the GI tract? No, you know what? I didn't. Unfortunately, I, the, the lawyer contacted me, hired me for the day to do it. And mm-hmm. then I thought nothing of it at the time. I, I maybe didn't realize that it was rare enough and, uh, it should have been more exciting to me. 
And the case actually got reported. I remember at the time when the case got thrown out, the Today Show and a couple national news agencies picked it up. But of course, I wasn't named. You know, I was just the guy that supervised her, you know, when the blood levels checked. So I was nameless in the uh, in the re- reporting on the news. But it was a really cool case. But I didn't do any research. I didn't write it up or anything. It was just a fun experience that I got to have um, early on in my career. It was maybe seven or eight years ago now at this point. Can we talk about your experience for a moment then? So have you, because we can be transparent here. This is the problem in that I've experienced in both a community space and a, a healthcare system space that people don't like to share their errors. Uh, I was definitely, uh, I would say, pleased to know that my previous employer treated errors a little bit different. It was a little bit more non-punitive because if there was a potential problem that occurred due to a um, a systems error and how we carried out our dispensing and ordering, it wasn't a negligent problem. It was non-punitive for the providers, pharmacy nurses involved. Uh, we had to fix it before there was an issue with another one. So this information was released to everybody in the hospital, or at least the teams that needed to know. Uh, and that, that let me sleep better at night, knowing as long as I follow my protocols, as long as I execute my position to the best, I shouldn't ever run into this situation. Now, that's not the same in the outpatient. We, it's highly punitive. I, I know of many of my colleagues who've worked at different uh, pharmacy dispensing locations, different companies who you, you have four errors, you're out, doesn't matter. Or you're written up and uh, disciplined, something goes in your file, it, it is highly volatile. Uh, so you do not want to make an error. Now, those types of errors can be something as simple as we handed out the wrong medication to a patient that had the same last name, maybe even the same first name. Patient never even took it, never even opened the bag, but the potential, that's that's when you say a near miss. That was a near miss. They never took it, but you would have been written up. That would have been strike one. Um, as far as I remember, I had my own problems and I, I, I want to I do want to talk about it. I think it's important. Do you have any of those situations that you would want to talk about? Because I can talk about a couple of mine that were inconsequential that that did come up. Yeah, we can. But I do have a question before you do that. Um, mm-hmm. So do you feel the punitive nature in the outpatient setting led to a reluctance to report errors? A hundred percent. It goes through the back of your mind every time. I, I've always reported everything that I've if I caught it myself that I did it, there's always that thought in the back of your mind. Should I report this? This is really dumb. This is inconsequential. Patient never even got, never took it. Um, For whatever the reason, should I even report this? This is, you should. I mean, at the end of the day, it's integrity. I think that we all need to practice integrity in the healthcare system. So yeah, it definitely underreported. As you said earlier, Part of the issue is if you don't report it, if there's a system-wide failure, if there is something in the system that is maybe leading to greater risk of that Swiss cheese model the of the holes lining up and something occurring, not reporting it means that that error may continue to occur. And your silly, you know, non-significant error that you don't want to report because you're embarrassed or you're worried about punitive action 
may have allowed administration or the the health system to identify a problem that could have prevented a more serious error down the road. Mm-hmm. And this this is the tough thing. I think the way you've described it, it's such a contrast to the the concerns associated with the the Redondavat case is if people are less likely to report if there's a worry of criminal action, not just even licensure or civil or malpractice, but criminal action, maybe these little errors don't get reported simply because people see them as, you know, no harm, no foul. If I report it, I could lose my license or I could end up in jail. Mm -hmm. So it it is something that I think it can have a chilling effect on that. So I'll give you one example. I think in my clinic, we, we have had some near misses, and a lot of times those near misses occur because of dosing miscalculation. So we'll you know provide injections or IV drugs, and we have good protocols in place. We generally do a really good job of adhering to those protocols. But even with those protocols, we had one case where we were pulling an injection or an infusion, and we were doing, I forget, I think it was 50 mg per keg or something like that. and the nurse pulled whatever amount was supposed to be there. I verified it. We both did the math wrong. Mm. So we ended up giving an incorrect dose. Thankfully, it was only about 25% higher than the the intended dose. And the drug has a very wide safety margin. So there was no concern for, for the patient in terms of negative outcomes, which is why I would consider it a near miss. Mm-hmm. But even with the, that double check system, we had two people checking it. We had two people confirming we both did our math wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it is important that that we always are aware of human nature. We will have mistakes in medicine, my goodness. So medical error is the leading cause of accidental death in the U.S. Mm. It is prevalent. It happens a lot, thousands and thousands of times each year. So I, I think we need to be aware of it and make sure that we don't think, oh, it won't happen to me, I'm careful. I don't make those types of errors, but rather recognize that it likely will happen to us during our careers and and make sure that we are taking the right steps to mitigate the effect of it. Myself, I was involved in some errors that um, it wasn't actually, uh, let me explain it and then you can decide. I was an intern at the time. I was practicing the outpatient and there was a counsel for somebody that I knew. They were picking up for their niece and I hadn't seen this person six years or so. So I got to chatting with them. My goodness, it was, you know, it's great to see you. Tell me what's going on with your family. Uh, then the technician brought the medication down said, okay, this has been mixed. Here you go. And I'm pretty sure I said, oh, you didn't put anything in the bag for dosing. Can you go back to the pharmacist counter and ask for a syringe? Well, the medication that we were giving was amoxicillin, I believe. It was either an amino penicillin or a cephalosporin that we were giving simple bacterial infection. I think maybe an inner ear infection. And as I got to talking to them, she said, okay, yeah. So wh- how am I supposed to tell my sister that how she's dosing this? I said, oh, it's going to be uh, 0.8, uh, which actually makes me think it was famotidine, but I'm just going to go with this. I mean, this is a long time. This ago. is all Greek to me. So, so 0.8 is a very small dose, uh, 0.8 milliliters. And we would dispense the correct syringe to go with it. You want to make sure the device is the right one so you're not drawing the wrong amount. 
However, the technician slipped a 10 milliliter syringe in the bag. So when they got home, they were giving 10 times the dose twice a day. And at that point, um, it was definitely it was definitely a uh, antibiotic because I got a call. Apparently, this baby was getting sick, vomiting, having diarrhea. A baby was okay. They were able to salvage the situation, never had to go to the emergency room, anything like that, just got sicker. They didn't know why. We found out that the wrong syringe was placed in the bag, and I did not verify that the correct syringe was being given. Usually, I want to show them, this is the line where you pull it back to, but I didn't. I got caught talking to her about personal things. Baby got sick and uh, recovered fine, but that if that was anything else that was being injected, if that was an insulin, done, donezo. Like You're going to the hospital. There's big issues happening. So- we have, we've all, whether it's been caught or not, every practitioner has most likely been involved in an error causing uh, some issue with the patient, something that causes side effect and adverse drug reaction that is reportable. So maybe the fear can dissipate a bit knowing that y- you have, whether you've known it or not, or you will. It's up to the responsible parties to ensure that we have systems in place that these errors don't occur to the frequency that they do. Uh, Anything that's involved in human nature will. Sometimes it makes me feel like I would rather be, I would rather cut lawns because the error in cutting lawns isn't going to result in a hospital visit. It becomes very personal. It sometimes makes you want to leave. When you have those errors, you kind of want to just say, you know what? forget this. I'm out. I, I don't want to be in this profession anymore. I can't sleep at night. So uh, you need to report it. And that's that's where this comes down to is if we're going to improve, you have to report it. And those overseeing boards need to treat these situations as though they're not all a negligent, negligent problem, but rather you bought an EMR system that wasn't implemented uh, correctly, wasn't trained enough, you don't have enough labor uh, behind your staff to support. So you're really busy. There are, with the Swiss cheese model, there, there's other problems that have already existed for this to happen. So what, for sure. what, what more, I want to ask you more about the practitioner side as being directly involved in care. What do you think this impact with this case is going to have on specifically nursing staff? It's so hard to say because- whether this is a true test case and we start to see more criminal liability for malpractice, we'll see. Maybe this was just a DA that had a really you know, bad ax to grind and for some reason decided to go after this. There's also, you alluded to it earlier, there's all kinds of funky stuff going on within this case where the hospital itself initially didn't report things. She was investigated by the nursing board and no action was taken. So there's all kinds of other failures in terms of correction or disciplinary action at a civil level that could have occurred. So maybe the DA saw that as something where they needed to come in and lay down the hammer. But if indeed you do start to see more criminal prosecution of healthcare providers that are carrying out their job, but making mistakes or having negligent outcome negligence lead to negative outcomes, I think it can be something that absolutely will have a negative impact on our profession, on burnout rates, on satisfaction. After this, after the conviction on social media, you saw nurses that were claiming to resign from their job because of this. Mm-hmm. They said, I'm not working in healthcare 
if my employer is not going to have my back? Mm-hmm. And how can you blame them? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, there was probably a, a physician or a provider that was, you know, screaming down the hall that they needed this patient down to, to imaging stat mm-hmm. and wondering why the nurse was taking so long to get the medication drawn. These hospitals are, are, are not exactly the most efficient. And yet the stress levels, especially in the two past two years with COVID, have just been so high. Mm-hmm. So I do agree with you, as you said earlier, so much of this is not that as per medical professionals, we have the ability to be perfect. We always want to strive for that. We always want to make sure that we take our craft very seriously because the outcomes are so dire. This is not just mowing lawns and having squiggly lines. We can really cause harm and we need to take that very seriously. But at the same time, we need to make sure that at a health system, um, at a systems level, we are really always looking for opportunities to make things safer, to put in extra fail safes. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, maybe the takeaway from this for us moving forward is that we need to be partners with our employers, with insurers, with patients, with anyone to make sure that safety and reducing medical error is a priority. Because I think so often, I'm sure you've done it, I've done it, so often there's things in place that are meant to be there for safety and maybe they're not well thought out, maybe they're poorly implemented, but the the guy, the idea behind them is that they're there to be safe and yet, as professionals, we just rag on them. And maybe we bypass them because it's annoying. You know, how many times do you see scripts dispense quantity sufficient? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a safety mechanism that I'm blowing through because I'm too lazy to do math. So I do it all the time because, yeah, let the pharmacist figure it out. Quantity sufficient. And yet, that's a safety mechanism that is there as a double check. It's just like on a on a financial document on a check if you write the number and then you write out the number a second time to make sure that you're not making an error same thing here so i think we just need to look at these checks that are in place and realize that this is a partnership we need to make sure that we're providing feedback to our employers to the health systems to help improve those systems and then we also need to make sure that we're respectful of them even when it's annoying even when it makes our job more difficult because medical error is common and it is something that is preventable so I want to add to this. Now, I want to bring the conversation to a bit more of KPI-based, okay? Key performance indicators, how well you're functioning at your job, giving data and analytics. We see this across multiple systems within, with, within and without healthcare, where your level of output is directly linear to how well you're doing in your job and your promotability. I'm imagining the scenario, just like you said, where doctor's screaming down the hall, I need to get this patient to imaging. Let's get him down, you know, sedate him. Let's go. You have all of these expectations to do things quickly and fast. And you have to, some of these scenarios, especially in an ICU or especially in a trauma uh, bay, an emergency department, things need to be done quickly. That's why there's extra training uh, that's why there's extra checks. That's why a pharmacist comes down during a code uh, in a lot of these bigger systems to say, yes, that is the correct dose to give them. All right, let's go. Somebody's drawing up, pharmacist double checks. You might even have a triple check with the uh, physician who's bedside before they inject. We are not responsible as employees of the healthcare system to ensure that there's enough labor behind you. 
I, I keep seeing more and more reports, especially in LinkedIn, about quality of life in the workplace. You are not responsible to make sure the employer has enough people to ensure that you can meet the needs of your patients. Work to what level that you comfortably can, that you accurately can. And if you're going above that, that's not your problem. Okay. Either your employer can say, well, you're not functioning as fast and as well as you want you to. And everybody else is functioning 10, 10 degrees higher than you. Uh, we're going to put you on a performance impro- improvement plan. Okay. There, there's probably times where that happens and that's appropriate. Uh, but given the culture that we have now, we, had, we have a shortage of labor. We not, we're not going to have as many double checks. We're not going to have people are People are coming into the hospital more and more. I mean, how many hospitals have you heard of that are over 100% capacity? People who are in, should be admitted to the ICU, ICU who are in hallways at the hospital. We don't have enough people, but that is not our problem. You know, we do need to take care of the patient as best as we possibly can. But if that gets you into a dangerous spot, you're putting yourself at risk and you're putting the patient at risk if you're going above what you're capable of. Know yeah. your limits, right? I think that's a great point, not only just from a patient safety standpoint, but even just with burnout. You know, we've seen so much burnout and so much frustration and dissatisfaction in healthcare, especially with COVID over the past two years. And I talk to my staff about this a lot because our clinic is very busy. It's a mental health clinic, so there's far more demand than supply. And when I talk to staff, I'll tell them, come in, put your, you know, A plus 100% effort You will never get through all the phone calls. You will never get through all the refills. You come in, you bust your butt, and when it's quitting time, you go home and you be proud of the effort that you put in. Mm -hmm. Because if you get hung up on, you know, trying to keep up, if demand is higher than what you can address with your current staffing, it's going to burn you out. Mm -hmm. If you are trying to stay late and constantly working longer and longer hours, it's going to burn out. So I, I totally agree with you. I think from a safety standpoint, if you're trying to do too much, if you're trying to do things that are outside of your your level of training, your level of scope or your ability, then that's a safety concern. If you're trying to do more than what you can comfortably do, given your ability, that's a safety concern. But also just for burnout, for job satisfaction, work hard, don't slack. But at the same time, if you know you put in your best effort, be comfortable with that. And just, you know, go go with the best that you can and don't worry if it's falling short because demand is always going to outstrip supply in healthcare. Uh, I would add one more to this. Trust your gut. If something, it doesn't feel right, slow down and question it. There has been so many times where myself or one of my colleagues or staff uh, brought in a, an issue to my attention that they don't feel comfortable with. If somebody doesn't feel comfortable, take pause. There's a reason for it. Even if, even if there's really nothing behind it, no substance behind it, it is worth considering. I always tell my staff, I will never be upset if you're trying to take care of the patient or trying to take care of the customer. <clears throat> if your intention uh, is to ensure satisfactory outcomes or uh, the satisfaction of the patient itself, themselves, then you've done the right thing in my book as as a supervisor now yeah you may be coached on it later you may you may be shown how there's a better response to be had or even a better outcome than what you provided but
but I will never discipline you to say you took your time to make sure that this patient got what they were supposed to uh, and got it still in an amount of time that didn't cause any harm. Uh, so that goes from everything from making sh- making sure that they got the right medication to ensuring the the patient's financial situation or financial impact of billing um, is done is completed correctly. If they go home safe and happy, that is what I'm most concerned with, and uh, we can always take it take it from there. Uh, this I, I think with this nurse, if you look at that vecuronium file, it's got a red top on it. Anytime there's a red top in a vial, it's supposed to give give uh, cause to wait a second and look at it. And on the top of the vial itself, it has warnings that this is a paralyzing agent. Uh, bold, all capital letters, uh, tons of mark, markations on that vial saying, slow down. I don't know the complete situation, but any nurse that pulls that should look at it and say, wait a second, what am I about to give here? Uh, slow down. You know, we, we tell that, we say that all the time in my field, slow down. Nobody ever, has ever been fired as a pharmacist for being too slow. Now, that may not be true, but we say that all the time in our field is you will be fired for too many errors. You will not be fired for being 80% proficient in how many verification steps you, you completed. Are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's theory of plane crashes from his book, Tipping Point? No, I haven't read ah, Tipping Point. Okay. So, this, so first off, everyone should read Tipping Point. I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell. I like his brand of pop psychology, so it's wonderful. So in the book, he has an entire chapter dedicated to the theory of plane crashes. And the the concept behind this is in the, I think in the 1990s, Korean Air had more plane crashes than any other airline in the world. So there was lots of theory behind this. You know, was it badly trained pilots? Was it faulty equipment? And Gladwell's theory is that it was cultural legacy. So the Korean culture is one that's very hierarchical hierarchical. Um, So you're obliged to be very deferential towards your elders and superiors in a way that, you know, in the U.S. we don't. U.S. is is very comfortable, I think, in most scenarios of kind of sticking it to the man or, or being, you know, outspoken if you think you're correct. But that's not the case in Korean culture. So the the theory behind this is that plane crashes were occurring because you have a pilot and a co-pilot and there's a a structure there you know, that is a, a, a master-servant relationship or certainly one of, of more superiority. And the co-pilot, as a result, even if the co-pilot recognized that there was a problem or recognized that the pilot was making a mistake, would never speak up and say something because it would have been disrespectful to the pilot. Mm. So what, what Korean Air ended up doing is bringing in Western culture consultants who worked with the pilots to work on more um, Western-focused assertiveness. You know, how to communicate within the cockpit, how to communicate with air traffic control in a way that's more assertive. And after this occurred, uh, the the number of plane crashes went down. So mm-hmm. I think it's a fascinating story, and there is some, some controversy if you go down, you know, the Google rabbit hole of whether this theory holds up to scrutiny. But I think it paints a nice picture for what we're talking about here. And I I love to use this when I have students. I like to talk about this theory with my my staff, that in medicine, medicine still is maybe more hierarchical than any other part of U.S. Mm -hmm. society, where, you know, an attending with decades of experience 
is someone who you don't question. It's very disrespectful to question. But guess what? Human nature is human nature. And even people that are brilliant leading minds within their industry or within their field may make mistakes. So I always encourage staff, I always encourage my students that if you see something, you say something, and it is imperative as a um, as a staff member, as a PA working for an attending physician, as a pharmacist on a medical team, that mm-hmm. if you're part of the team, even if you're in a subordinate role, if you believe that there is something going wrong, you need to say something, even if it's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. even if your your boss or your superior comes down harshly on you because they feel that you're criticizing them or you're undercutting their authority, it is absolutely imperative in medicine that we speak up because safety can often rely on those many sets of eyes looking at a problem. And maybe you missed something, but your MA didn't. Your MA Mm -hmm. saw something happen. I have another example, actually. It was a great catch. I was doing a procedure that required sterile field And we were doing the procedure, and I put my gloves on. And as I was putting my gloves on, I guess one of the gloves brushed up against something. And Mm -hmm. I did not see it. It was just a slight. But the MA that was helping me that day caught it and called a safety and said, hey, Mm -hmm. you broke sterile field. I said, oh, thank you. I didn't see that. It took an extra, you know, 15 minutes to get new equipment, get new gowns and all that. But it was an awesome catch because I don't know in all of those cases, if people would be confident to speak up and say, hey, I saw you break sterile field. Mm -hmm. And yet that the fact that she was brave enough to do so was wonderful because it prevented a safety concern. I wouldn't go to the same too for you or any any provider to say, start humbling yourselves. You're you're definitely you may be the big dog, but you're prone to hairs, too. So Mm -hmm. listen to your staff. Uh, Don't put them down. We all know those people we've worked with before who are strong-willed, have a good sense or maybe even confidence, we'll call it confidence, right? Overconfident, where they carry themselves with an air of, I can do no wrong, I'm hot stuff, I'm the next up and coming this or that, uh, because they think that their title may be taken from them if they're seen to be potentially incompetent at something. But it's humble to know that everybody will have that medication. We've said it 10 times on this podcast already. So if you're one of those people that have never been approached or had, don't seem approachable, take a step back because maybe the safety of a patient or the safety of your career uh, is held in the hands of becoming more humble about your position and listening to others. It may be the detriment to your livelihood. Um, I think all of us have had to have that moment where, like you asked me, does it does self-reporting in punitive areas cause you to report less? Um, it's the same with the situation. If you are if you are the personality in which you cannot be approached with something. Are you putting yourself at higher risk of issues in the future? This whole podcast is about personal and professional development. If you become more humble and approachable at work, uh, people seem to like to be around you a little bit more. That's going to transfer to your own lifestyle at home as well. You know, your wife, husband, kids, parents are going to be a lot happier with you 
um, if you take a little bit of a journey with your personality. So I have to be more likable to have success in my career. Uh, no, I mean, house, right? Well, I'm screwed I mean, well, then. He was also <laughs> addicted to Oxycontin. So that's a little bit different, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but those people are rare, right? The, the people who are so good at that job that nobody cares what their personality and attitude are like. I, I know some of those people that, but they're not usually working directly with patients. Mm-hmm. They're usually in the backend IT side or the financial side or working with third parties. They're doing something else that they don't necessarily need to have that type of an attitude. Uh, we can bring that, we can bring this conversation into more collaboration when we, when we have another episode up on that. So uh, personally though, I would agree with that, Mike, maybe that's not a popular opinion, but uh, if people like to work with you, they're probably going to talk to you more about anything. Yeah, I think it's correct. It may, it may not be, it may be an uneasy truth, but I think, having good relationships, being approachable, not being dictatorial in your leadership mm-hmm. style probably does improve safety. It reduces errors by improving communication and confidence to speak up within the team. So can I, can I just, uh, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take a step back in a second. I'm going to let you wrap up with some final thoughts, but I also want to have uh, a couple of final thoughts. Um, I think if you, if this hasn't been an area that you've been invested in, that you've read about, maybe you've never had an error that's been significantly causing any sort of sleepless nights, not something you go in prepared for at work. I want you to go to the ISMP website. The ISMP website is what pharmacists, uh, I would say it's the book of Maccabees, the pharmacist, or like it's, it's some sort of uh, holy literature to us because we refer to it often. Um, when you call us about drug issues that we don't know about with safety concerns, we're going to the ISMP most likely. Uh, the CDC points to it. Uh, they have um, many resources and tools for every type of practitioner. And I was just on the website uh, just a second ago, just looking up the old resources as well. There's white letters on there, or white, sorry, white papers on there. Uh, there's links to other websites that can help as well. There are library, um, libraries of recommendation of books out there. Please read one of those, uh, resources, but at least check out the ISMP. There's, that is the, uh, the gateway, um, resource of all things, avoiding medication errors. All right. And I'll wrap up with my final thoughts. I think uh, the big takeaway today is obviously a little bit more of a a more serious episode. And what we're going to do is we'll include these resources in the show notes. Normally, our show notes are behind the paywall and are only for subscribers. But I think for today's, because medical errors is such an important thing, we'll have this available to everybody um, in case they want to check it out. The resources that John was listing will be included. I think my takeaway for today is that in light of this case, the concerns that come from this, this is a good opportunity to just reevaluate where you're at within your current job. Have a conversation with your employer. Have a conversation with your healthcare team about medical errors. What is the protocol within your clinic if a medical error or a near miss occurs? What's the reporting? Is staff confident or does staff feel comfortable that if an error occurs, they'll come forward? 
Or is there a culture of punitive judgment or punitive punishment if something were to occur? I think having those conversations in light of of these recent events is a really good thing because this isn't necessarily something we always talk about. I think a lot of times in medicine, we do want to strive for perfection, but also expect perfection from ourselves and our colleagues. And maybe this offers an opportunity for us to all do some self-reflection, both personally, but also within our employment situations and make sure that we're having these conversations and deliberations over how to prevent medical errors, but also how to respond if an error occurs. Mm-hmm. So I think, John, as we've always done, especially after this episode, since it was a little bit more uh, serious, let's talk about some personal stuff. Medicine can be all, all-encompassing, especially when we're talking about, my goodness, criminal liability because of bad bad issues or bad mistakes in medicine. So do you have anything fun personally going on? Oh, goodness. The family's been sick. Everybody's been coughing. I can't tell you how many COVID tests I've taken the last few days having lost my voice, I haven't lost my, vo- I don't think I've ever lost my voice. And at work, I just have to talk all day. You know, it's nonstop. So it's been hard to have a little bit of fun uh, with all the side projects, but I will say that I, I am a fan of thrillers and horrors. And so my late night fun is my wife goes to bed early and I stay up and I watch something, you know, so right now, I have just, did I talk about severance already on this podcast? You did. Yes. Okay. So I, after severance, I started this, <laughs> this another Apple, uh, TV, uh, mini series called, uh, servant. And it's about this, this, uh, family who had a horrible accident or issue where one of their, their, their baby had passed away. And it starts off with, uh, this, this hiring of a nanny and she comes in and she, it's a little bit weird. She kind of looks like a little bit culty, you know, straight laced looking like she's coming from a seventies, uh, Catholic confirmation. You know, it's like, something's off with this. Well, I'm not going to ruin anything, but, uh, I, cause it's in the first episode, but it turns out that the baby you have seen the whole episode and this is a miniseries, okay? So nobody freak out on me right now. Uh, turns out the baby that you've been seeing the whole time, you've only seen part of its head, you know, it's the, ba- the mother's moving it around. Uh, it ends up being a fake doll. And this mother hires a nanny for her fake doll. And it's some sort of trauma uh, uh, coping mechanism that her provider came up with where, you know what? She's not doing well in life. Let's give her this false baby. And and somehow she came out of her stupor and she was doing really well in life again, but she hires the nanny to take care of it. But it's not, and the husband realizes that it's not a real baby. So he's like, psychologically, it's messing with him. And I'm telling you, it's messed up. It's weird. It puts you in a weird spot. If you like feeling strange and off, watch the show. Now I'm psychotic, but that's uh, that's me. I'm having a great time watching it, though. I haven't finished it completely uh, yet. I'm almost done. That sounds bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, awesome. did you just ruin the show, or was that was that mm-hmm. a big reveal? First that uh, okay, first sounds episode. good. So we don't have to worry about spoiler alerts. No, nope, okay. no spoiler. And and it's the first episode. That's always a freebie. If it's a pilot, zero F's given. All right. So I'm I'm having I'm having a nostalgic weekend. So it's Easter weekend. 
And growing up, one of the things that I I love is I I remember my dad making homemade cinnamon rolls. And this was always only for special occasions. You know, so holidays, Christmas morning, he would always have homemade cinnamon rolls. And they were just incredible. So I have the recipe and I do make them on occasion, but it's probably been, you know, over a year since I've made them. So for Easter weekend, um, tomorrow is Easter, just for people that are listening to this. So this morning, Saturday morning, I got up. First thing I did was I made my dough. I let it proof for a couple hours. And then this evening we rolled it out and put it in the fridge. So I've got all my cinnamon rolls ready to go for Easter morning. Mm. And it's incredibly nostalgic because this is what my dad always did for for special occasions, for holidays. And today, my three-year-old, instead Mm. of playing outside with his friends, stuck with me for, you know, the entire time, a couple hours and we rolled out the dough, we spread out the cinnamon sugar. So I had a really great time cooking with my three-year-old, mm-hmm. probably in a similar way that when I was three, I helped my dad roll out cinnamon rolls the day before holidays. So it was a, a fun weekend of, of baking for me. So that was a really enjoyable thing. When you, because when you come home and sometimes you've had a really hard day at work, and this is I mean, reminiscent of everything I've ever heard about being a father or a mother coming home to your kids. You've had a hard day. You come home and your kids are so excited to see you. But those times you're like, I don't want kids right now. I just want to go to my room and be alone. Um, When you have those moments, it's like, but when, isn't it amazing when you have those days, you're like, I really enjoyed learning about my kid, like learning about my, like what are what they're passionate about, seeing them just excited mm-hmm. is, is wonderful. As we're preparing to go to Disney, I'm kind of looking forward to it and oh, frightened. So, so frightened. I think we I need got, a whole episode on how John survived Disney. We, we can talk. We can talk all about it. Four boys within five years of age. It's just, oof, we're going to see how this goes. But yeah, it's it's awesome to hear that you had a great time with your son and and I mean, if you want to save me a couple of those cinnamon rolls, I, I was supposed to be out uh, in Buffalo yes, or today to have some great cooking, but with the kids sick, it's just, we can't put anybody else at risk right now. So I, I missed oh. out on some great food. I'll freeze them for you. Thank you. All right, John, until next time. All right. Yeah, we are White Coats of the Round Table. Thanks for coming by listening. Please visit our Patreon. Please leave a review. We'll see you next time.